The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our daily webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today to learn more about investing and the markets. Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, is on the line, and we are both thrilled to welcome a special guest today, Scott Black, Head of Delphi Management in Boston, and one of the longest serving members of the Barron's Roundtable. Scott is one of the greatest value investors I know. He spends a lot of time studying mid caps and small caps. He builds his own earnings models and he always reads the fine print in financial documents. And believe me, it pays off. Year after year, he continues to impress us and our roundtable readers with his market insights and his investing acumen. Please welcome Ben and Scott. It is a pleasure to have you both on Barron's Live today. Thanks, Lauren. Thank you for inviting me, Lauren. A pleasure. So, Scott, I'm going to pretend that this is another Barron's Roundtable meeting. So I'm going to start by asking you about your macro outlook. We'll begin with the Fed. The Fed is meeting again this week. It will probably raise interest rates by a quarter of a percentage point. And I think the big question everyone has, I'll put it to you, is this going to be the last rate hike of this cycle? What do you think? I actually don't think so. You know, I looked at inflation, the PCE, the personal consumer index there, it was still up 3.8 year over year. It was up four tenths in May. The trailing 12 months on the CPI is down to 3%, and the run rate for the last four months is 2.4% annualized. Now, we're getting close to the 2% target. And I think, although Ben Ben Bernanke and then a follow-on, Jay Powell, were late to the party here, they've done a pretty good job of trying to tame the inflation. But I think there's another 25 this week and then another 25. And people who think that they're going to cut rates, barring another banking debacle like we saw with Silicon Valley Bank, I don't think that's in the cards for 2023. So I wouldn't be surprised the Fed goes up another 50 basis points. Um, I think you also have to look what they've done with their balance sheet and the money supply. So M1 is down about 9.8% year over year, and M2 is down 4%. And they've shrunk the balance sheet about $618 billion. We were at, we were at one, uh, almost $9 trillion at the peak. We're now at $8.34 trillion. So the, the monetary policy overall has been fairly constrictive. In, two, in 2023. So I think they're on the right track. You know, I have a long memory. I started investing in 1980 professionally, and we had massive inflation of over 12% under Jimmy Carter, and then it was inherited by Ronald Reagan, and Volcker had to break the back of inflation, and he did that. Well, obviously, there was a lot of damage done. I remember the Dow got down to about 767 on the nadir, I think, in 1980. 82, but they broke the back of inflation until October 19, 1987, was pretty much straight up. And I think that this Fed is committed to the same idea. They're going to have to break the back of inflation. Seems so to me I think his, it, history is a valuable teacher here, isn't it? 
what was that? No, history is a valuable teacher, just having the perspective. I agree it is. Now, we don't have the kind of rampant inflation we had under, you know, Jimmy Carter, and we didn't have the same type of misery index, which was the combination of unemployment plus inflation. Now, you may ask me, do you think we're going to have a recession? And the answer is no. And that's because, you know, headline unemployment is still only 3.6%. And as long as people work, people are going to spend money. And I looked at the most recent BEA figures for GDP, and consumption is about 68% of the GDP. So that's still quite buoyant. I think we'll have a slow growth economy around 1, 1.4%. Next year, probably slightly under 2%. But I do think we avert a recession. So what does that mean for the stock market? The market's having a wonderful year, presumably because there is no recession in sight. It's outperforming expectations. Do you think investors have gotten carried away here with bullishness? I agree with that. I think there's been too much ebullience in the market. If you look at the closing indexes on last Friday, the S&P was 4,536.34. The S&P own estimate bottom up is 216.16, which would imply a 9.8% increase year over year. That's just ridiculous. If you have 1% real growth and 4 or 5% annual inflation, it's 5% nominal GDP growth. It's hard to believe that earnings grow at 10%. Plus, operating margins peaked in the second quarter of 2021 at 13.5%, with down 208 basis points. So I think it's more realistic at about 211, and on that basis, the S&P is 21 and a half times this year. Now, the NASDAQ's ridiculous. It's up 41% through Friday, selling at 30 and a half times earnings, and the Russell 2000 is selling at 25 times earnings. And if you look at short-term interest rates, the three-month is about 5.4, the six-month is close to 5.5, and and the one-year at 5.33, it seems to me that's formidable competition for a market that's selling over almost 22 times expected earnings. It's all been liquidity-driven, and as you probably know, it's all been driven by the top seven stocks, which are both concentrated in the S&P and the NASDAQ. And the top seven stocks account for 27.6% weighting in the S&P and 55.1% of the NASDAQ. And I looked at numbers. If you looked at the equal weight, S&P through Friday's close, it was up 9-1 as opposed to 19-2 for the S&P. And if you strip out the top seven stocks, the market itself is only up 4% for the rest of the you know, uh, S&P 500, which is 493 stocks. So, so I'm going really to ask been... you and Ben a question. I'll start with you, Scott, then we'll go to Ben. What could stop this rally? What, what are you most concerned about? I think if earnings continue to come in poorly, so far they haven't done very well, but this is a big week. We see all the big tech numbers you know, coming to the fore and some of the pharmaceutical companies. But I think if people start looking behind just the liquidity and start looking at P.E. ratios again and corporate earnings and growth, I think you know, that, that, that may put in a dose of reality again because stocks are way ahead of themselves. What do you think, Ben? 
Yeah, I agree with Scott. Uh, I, I think we saw last week with both uh, Tesla and Netflix that, you know, the earnings were, were fine. They weren't exciting, but, you know, they weren't terrible. Um, but the, the stocks had a pretty negative reaction just because they've, uh, they've been so strong. And I think that uh, is something we have to worry about for this entire big seven um, is that uh, they gained so much that is there anything that they can report that is going to be good enough for the market? And since they are so big, you know, it's going to be harder for that uh, the, the rest of the group out there to do the lifting. So good enough is, is the key here. Scott, I want to ask you, we talked about the big seven, but your specialty is really mid and small cap stocks. They didn't get a lot of respect during the FANG era, and they aren't getting a lot of respect now. What would it take to improve the outlook for the market's smaller stocks? I think you need a full-blown economic recovery. And the one area that's beside you know, consumption, which is good, is the industrial sector is weak. And, of course, that affects the smaller companies more than it does bigger companies. If you look at things like wholesale sales, and I'm taking this from your market laboratory, which you publish each week, wholesale sales are down 4%, manufacturing orders are down 1%, non-durable goods are down 6 7 and the PMI is at a 46 rating, which tells you you're in decline on the manufacturing sector. I think you really need a buoyant economy to get the small caps rolling again. And I looked at the numbers. I mean, this year you can drive a you can drive a submarine through the difference. The Russell 1000 growth is up 31 percent. The Russell 2000 value is up 7.4. That's year to date. That's 23.6 percent percentage points differential. And if you look over the five year or the 10 year, you look at large cap growth. Five year is 14.5 percent per annum. The 2000 value is 4 percent. You look at 10 years, the 1,000 growth, which is a proxy for the NASDAQ 100, is up 15.4. The Russell 2000 is basically compounded at 7%. And even the mid-cap, the 2,500 value is 7.8. So large caps have way outperformed on a homogeneous basis, both small and mid-cap, the last five and 10 years. And, uh, you know. Unfortunately, because a lot of people are buying ETFs and they're cap-weighted, the money goes into the triple Qs or the spiders, and that continues to be a self-fulfilling prophecy of driving up the large-cap names. It's almost a structural issue that works against the small caps. So, yeah, One of the things I wanted to touch on was some of the negatives as we look, not this year, but out and beyond, because I think yeah. there, there's some things on the horizon that are, that are bad. Firstly... If you look at the OM budget outlook, this year was supposed to have a fiscal deficit of $1.54 trillion, but it's not improving. For 2024, $1.57, and in 2025, $1.76. So we have huge structural deficits built in, and that's not good. It's getting to the point where interest expense on the federal debt is running amok. In 2022, it was only $476 billion. This year, it's $663 billion in terms of interest expense, and by 2025, it's $773 billion. And it's almost the same as the defense budget of the United States. The defense budget is $790 billion. So I think it's something we have to look at. The outstanding debt to GDP is at 1.23 times. It's the highest since Harry Truman was president, but we had an excuse. We had to win World War II both in Japan and in Europe. And so... Nobody's addressing these huge fiscal deficits. Um, another thing that concerns me is the long-term demographics of the United States. If you look at our birth rate, it's now the lowest it's been in the post-war era. It's 1.64. 
I know people get all upset about immigration, but we need immigrants. You know, people who have studied macroeconomics know that the change in productivity times the change in the number in the labor force equals the real growth in GDP. And yet we have stagnant growth in terms of the uh, a number of people in the workforce. So we need immigration desperately. I don't know how Congress is going to legislate it, but it's very important. Well, I'm glad you brought up those longer-term issues, and I think we could devote a whole call to them, but definitely something to keep in mind as, as the market goes higher and higher. So, Scott, we're going to come back to you in a few minutes and talk about some of your favorite stocks, but now I want to turn to Ben for an update on some of the big companies reporting this week. Ben, we'll start with Detroit, and we'll take a look at GM and Ford, both reporting. Yeah, uh, both these stocks have had actually really good, uh, really good three months. Um, actually, it's more more like two months, but they've been up. Uh, for GM, it's fifteen percent. Uh, for Ford, it's eighteen percent. Um, and you know, there there is a lot of optimism out there about them. Um, there's ring a J.P. Morgan note that was talking about uh, them expecting another quarter of above consensus earnings for both the companies, um, and they they credit it to um, you know uh, sales and production and having recovered faster than any that they thought it would. And also that uh, new vehicle pricing has held up pretty well. Um, but I also asked Al Root uh, what he thought. And he said, well, they better take EBIT guidance up. Um, and uh, the stocks have been, because the stocks have been doing so well. And he says that it's going to be all about pricing and EV sales momentum. Those are going to be the two significant issues. Um, and so going back to JP Morgan, you know, they think actually there's room for guidance to go up um, at both GM and Ford. Um, both of them have kind of built in a cushion. Um, Ford uh, last quarter actually didn't raise guidance despite having a pretty nice uh, quarter there. And GM raised it some, but not entirely. And that could mean that there is room to uh, up guidance if they believe that uh, there really isn't going to be that weakness in pricing that many have been expecting for so long. Um, but, you know, it's going to be a question then of uh, can they can the numbers be good enough that uh, they're going that they can uh, they can keep this rally going. And there's also just going to be that question of the EVs. Um, is this going to be just something that keeps sucking up money, um, which doesn't result in big enough sales or actually can they start producing enough of these and sell enough of them for it to be a meaningful contribution? I feel like that's been the question for every quarter for the past five years. Yeah, and explains, I think, a lot about why, if you look at a, a chart of this stock, of either of these stocks going back about, uh, you know, say just a year, you know, it, it, they're completely range bound. Um, they, they just, you know, they don't really go anywhere because I think they're in, in this wait and see pattern of like, are they going to be able to actually make a big move here? So let's talk now about AT&T and Verizon. They also report this week. These stocks are not range-bound. They've been hurt by a Wall Street Journal report, really an expose that looked at the lead contamination caused by the phone company's wires. Wall Street has been trying to calculate the damage from this and the safety of the company's Zoftik dividends. We've done our own math on the topic. I know Al Root has, and you've done some. So how about sharing the worksheets with us? What do you see? Well, Al did his math when the initial uh, estimates were coming out and the, the initial estimates were pretty high. Um, I think it was New Street who came out and said it's gonna be something like 34, 35 billion um, for, it could, could be for, for AT&T. The analyst did put a huge 
margin of error around it. Basically, uh, he came to that number by saying that he, he looked at the, he tried to guess the approximate number of you know miles of cable that would have to be replaced, and um, he came up with a range, and he came up with a range of replacing it uh, from low to high, and then he sort of picked the middle number, if, like he took the middle of his estimates of what the uh, the miles were and the middle of the cost, you got this $35 million, billion, sorry, billion, not million. Um, and Al did his math off of that. And then it's a lower number for Verizon. And he found that there'd be, you know, some pressure, but it looked like uh, both companies would be able to maintain their dividends, even if they had to take out a lot of debt um, over a five-year period to do a cleanup of um, the uh, of the cables. Um, what's interesting to see since then is that uh, there's been a lot of now uh, pushback coming from the re from the rest of the street, um, where uh, I think it was uh, Cowan actually came out with a note either uh, today or on, on Friday, uh, basically saying that they don't think that there is much of a liability here at all, uh, which is uh, I, I find pretty fascinating, um, just given how big the reaction was. Um, and uh, it, it's going to be, I believe, uh, an overhang in some sense for these stocks, um, but perhaps not as big as it has been for uh, other companies um, that, that. What do was have the Cowan rationale? They just see it as a much smaller problem that uh, they, they, they see the, um, the miles being um, not, not nearly as many miles as uh, initially estimated. Um, and uh, they um, and they just don't think there's going to be a lot of cleanup. Um, and and it, it is. It, I mean, it's interesting that uh, the, the the journal story um, highlighted this issue, but it was an issue that was out there. All I mean, it, it was out there already. People knew about these cables, um, and they're going to go back and test the uh, do tests on the, on the wires and where they're located and, and try to figure things out. But uh, that's what they're saying, and you're seeing the stocks respond to that. I mean, all uh, you know, both AT and T and Verizon have uh, have rallied pretty strongly. AT and T's up another uh, 1.6% today. Um, Verizon's up 1%. The one that uh, we wrote about and we talked about last time was was fiber. When we talked about uh, um, Frontier Communications, um, the ticker is FYBR or fiber. Um, you know, we were down uh, so something along the lines of 15% uh, in the stock or more. Um, now, now we're up on the stock because it's rallied uh, well back from, you know, we picked it on a Friday um, and it's rallied well above where it was when uh, when we picked the stock. It's up 4% today. So the market is acting as if this is, is going to be that big a deal. Um, I'm not convinced that's the case. I think it's going, I think there's an issue, there's a possibility that this ends up being an overhang. Um, for a while, even if it doesn't end up being a, a big problem. Every once in a while, it's going to rear its head. Stocks will, will fall a little bit off of it, and then they'll go about their business. I think the biggest bigger issue, and we can pivot to their earnings, which are due on Tuesday for Verizon, Wednesday for AT&T, is that both these companies are facing a lot of competition from cable companies who are offering free lines. Um, their net ads um, are slowing. You have this worry about Amazon coming to the wireless market that, you know, I think when that those headlines broke, uh, you know, probably a little overdone, but that's that's an overhang as well. And then you have the fact that everybody loves AI and these stocks don't really have an AI um, 
um, play there. And so I, I think uh, it, it, there, there's just a lot that has gone wrong with these stocks. And so you did have this big sell-off. I think people took advantage of it, but the fundamentals still aren't great. So it's going to be interesting to watch how these stocks uh, trade uh, when they release their earnings uh, on um, Tuesday, Wednesday, and what they actually have to say about the lead issue. Thanks for the update. We'll definitely be listening for that and we will be covering it. So some of the tech giants also report this week, Microsoft Alphabet and Meta, formerly Facebook. Our colleagues will be hosting a tech call Thursday on Barron's Live. So let's very briefly get a preview of coming attractions. All right, so, let's start with, with Microsoft. It's due Tuesday. It's up 20% in the past three months. Um, it's expecting to report a profit of $2.55 a share, which would be up from $2.23. I was looking at uh, Raymond James' note, and they said, and this is not going to be a surprise to anyone, the sentiment has been sentiment has been definitively positive on Microsoft. Like, here's breaking news. Um, what people are going to be watching are both about the uh, uh, what's going on with Azure, their cloud business, um, how much is that growth decelerating, and then looking for more quantity quantification of how much money they can make off of AI. Are they going to be able to raise estimates for uh, fiscal 24 and beyond? So that's on, um, that's Microsoft. With um, with Alphabet, uh, they haven't performed quite as well. They're up 14% uh, past three months. Um, and you're going to be looking at advertising revenue. So what's happening there? Is it going, are they going to be able to, uh, is advertising revenue improving? There's some issues around, um, perhaps around YouTube. Um, that they, that had been getting better, but you're seeing more competition from TikTok, Reels, um, and Netflix and Disney are even trying to get into the kind of the short space, uh, and, and or sorry, into the advertise, video ad space. And so it's going to be more competition for ads there. Um, and, you know, so, it, and it's one where if you look at the stock, um, it has uh, kind of topped out a bit. Um, its relative strength against the S&P 500 is weakening. Um, it's actually concerning, according to a Rotham KM technical a analyst, and it really needs to hold 115 um, as it goes through this earnings period. Finally, you have Meta, which is um, reporting on uh, Wednesday. They've gained 38% in the last three months, up 145% year to date. That's amazing. Um, one analyst I was reading has said, and here's another one, valuation fully appreciates peak digital ad share. And I want to say, you think? Um, they, basically, they, the analyst argues that uh, the, the gain this uh, quarter has been propelled by this uh, better competitive positioning. Everyone's excited that kind of uh, Facebook is back in terms of having, uh, um, you know, uh, Instagram and it has uh, Facebook and it has uh, threads now. And then um, the ad market stabilizing. And, but of course, this is all about everybody wanting to buy big tech. And it's hard to see what's going to keep that money flowing into that. So this analyst is, is kind of uh, worried heading into earnings. All right. Now let's talk about the movies. It seems like half of America went to the movies this weekend to see either Barbie or Oppenheimer. I did not. Did either of you? I, I did not. I'm seeing Oppenheimer on Wednesday. Ah, and how about you, Scott? No Barbie? I'm yeah, I, I plan to see Oppenheimer this week. Okay. Well, Barbie was the big winner this weekend, although they both did well. But I want to take a closer look at the Barbie phenomenon simply because Mattel is reporting this week. Mattel is Barbie's creator. What does the movie mean, Ben, for Mattel, and what else should Mattel investors know? Well, then we'll get to Scott Stocks. D.A. Davidson said it, it four good things come from this. One, it will boost related toy sales in the near term, I'm quoting here. Um, you know, even if the movie's not oriented towards kids, this is going to mean people are going to be buying Barbie 
toys for their kids or for other people's kids. Um, it's going to make Barbie more relevant in terms of uh, just the pop culture. Um, they're going to be able to get more brand licensing revenue, though they don't really disclose that. Um, and it's also going to result in um, in uh, money coming to Mattel from the, how well the movie has done, though we have no idea how that's going to be. Um, and, and so, you know, it's uh, again, here's a, a question going forward about, you know, are they going to be able to repeat this kind of um, success with other brands? We know they're doing, uh, they want to do Hot Wheels. Um, I think they want to do Barney. Do they own Barney? I might have that wrong. But, uh, you know, they, they want to try to repeat this with their uh, other um, intellectual property. Um, and I think that's going to be the key to the story is can they uh, keep making these kinds of movies that make their 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 brands uh, worth more, get people to buy more of these toys, talk about more of these toys, have them be more relevant. A lot of that won't matter uh, heading into the into the earnings, I don't think. Um, what we've had is that Mattel has done very well. It's up 22 uh, percent in the past three months, almost entirely based on this Barbie craze that's going on. And um, there's good news out there um, so that uh, um, Sorry, so Davidson has said that um, the uh, that they've worked down their their inventory. That's great news, um, but the problem is that Mattel already has some very good um, guidance out there. Um, the company has uh, what the analyst calls hockey stick sales recovery in the second half of twenty three, and the analyst doesn't quite sure how, what's out there that's going to help them beat that guidance. Um, and so they're bullish on the stock, but they're quote not super pounding the table here. Um, and I think that's fair. I mean, they're in, in, unless if they, the one thing that could happen is they have a quarter like Nvidia did where they're able to show that Barbie has had such a much bigger impact than, and perhaps much longer impact than anyone thought. And then the stock could really gain. Really quite a phenomenon. It's amazing. I mean, I, I never like when I was a kid, you know, we all made fun of Barbie because just for how uh, um, unnatural uh, Barbie was. Um, we'll leave that for another day. Yeah. No, <laughs> but I'm going to want to hear your. Very article. bizarre to see. Yep, exactly. All right, Scott, I want to get back to some of the stocks you like. We have about five minutes to run through four good stocks and then we'll take some listener questions. Why don't we start with the two you recommended at the roundtable, Iteran and Eagle Materials. For those who didn't read the roundtable or who want to know more, tell us what makes these two names so attractive. Well, Iteran has a unique franchise. It's called Telematic Services, and it's a fancy name for stolen vehicle recovery. They put like a GPS locator in your automobile. Then they also do things for monitoring fleet management and connected car services like mobile apps. Like, you know, if you're on the highway and your car breaks down and you want to communicate, you can have a back and forth communication. So Iteran is based in a suburb of Tel Aviv. The stock went out at 27.76, has a market cap of $563 million and a dividend yield of 2.2%. There's excess cash on the balance sheet. There's about $1.20 in cash. We did our own model. Um, we have revenues up about 10% to 322 million, and my earnings model is about 240. The street, there's one analyst, is 224, but we include a profit improvement program of 30, 40 basis points in gross margin. So if you take the 2776 and you back out the cash, it's selling at 11.1 times earnings, which is pretty cheap. Um, 
The return on equity has been over 20 percent, 20 years and uh, 10 years in a row, and on a pro forma basis, it should be about 31 percent this year. Um, <clears throat> that, so nothing that je- free cash flow generation. I look back over the last three years plus the first quarter, and uh, they generate free cash year in year out. They have 2.11 million subscribers worldwide. They added 191,000 last year and 49,000 in the first quarter, and they've grown at about an 11% clip in terms of subscribers over the last five years, and they get about $100 a month per subscriber. Um, geographically, the biggest market is Israel, 738,000, Brazil, 558,000. They're expanding in Argentina and Mexico, and they're about to end to India, which has 250 million registered vehicles. And it doesn't take a lot of mortar and bricks. You need a sales force to do this, but you don't need a big factory like an Intel or a uh, Micron technology type of thing. They have three diverse types of customers. They have the rent-a-car companies like Avis and Hertz. They have OEM manufacturers like VW, General Motors, Nissan, and Scania. And they work with insurers like AIG, Allianz, Sun America. So it's a pretty good business. 75% of the revenue is recurring because, you know, you can't lapse your subscription in case you don't want your car getting stolen. And then there's some hidden value. They own 17.2% of a startup in Israel called Bring, B-R-I-N-G-G, which is a last-mile delivery service. At the last round, Bring was valued at a billion dollars, which gives them 172 million. It's carried on the books at 700,000, so fully taxed at six dollars and 44 cents in hidden value. The one thing that could retard the stock right now is what we talked about earlier: the fact that the Knesset passed something that was anti-judiciary today um, is probably going to hinder some of the Israeli stocks in the short term. But the company's well run. Um, the engineering is, is, is excellent. It's from a, a, young, a fellow who went to the Technion. There are two brothers that run it, Nir Sharatsky and A.L. Sharatsky. And the insiders themselves own over 20% of the company. So I don't think there's much downside risk. It's a buoyant business, no debt on the balance sheet. And it continue, continues to grow at about a 10% clip on the top line. All right. And the ticker is ITRN. I just wanted to get that. Co- so- correct. All right, we're running short on time, so maybe you can give us a quick summary of Eagle Materials and then the other two. Okay, so Eagle Materials is a large producer of cement, concrete aggregates, gypsum wallboard, and paperboard. Um, They've had a straight-up earnings record quarter over quarter since the third quarter of 2019. I have the revenues at $2.2 billion this year, up 3%. The earnings per share, about $13.5, up 8%. So the stock is at 190.91. It's about a 14 PE. Uh, pro forma return on equity is about 35%. They have a triple B credit or investment grade. And the return on total capital is about 18%. Cement is the biggest business. Revenue-wise, is about 43% of the revenue and 36% of the operating income. Wallboard was 50, 41% of the revenue, 52% of operating income. They last year produced about 7.1 million tons of cement. They have eight plants with capacity of about 7.35. 
and they're very good at uh, capital allocation. They do bolt-on acquisitions. They do capex to improve efficiency, and then share repurchase. They've repurchased 30% of the float in the last five years. And if you look at some of the competitors like Martin Marietta, a 28 PE, Vulcan Materials, 34 PE, at 14 times, this seems like a you know a, a giveaway. And then if you look at the prices on cement, they've been going up at about. 8% year over year, and every dollar, $10 per ton in cement prices equals $1.57 increment in earnings per share. So I think it's a well-run company. They're based down in Dallas, Texas. I've met with the CEO, Michael Hack, and I think, I think it's a well-run business. And the infrastructure bill, bill, uh, bill is definitely going to help them. They're concentrated in Texas, the South, and the Midwestern states. So they should all be beneficiaries of uh, infrastructure spending. And normally okay. the breakdown of the business, yep, 50% no, infrastructure. Say, a, okay. Go ahead. 25% okay. non-residential construction and 25% residential construction. Sounds like a good infrastructure play. So moving on, let's talk about Diamond Offshore for a minute. The ticker is F-A-N-G, FANG. Right. It's about $141 stock, $25.6 billion market cap, a 320 dividend for 2.3% yield. Um, we have them earning about $17.50 this year. Uh, oil prices aren't as high as they were last year. So last year, their average oil, um, they earned about $24, but it's an 8.1 PE. Then if you look at the price to discretionary cash flow, which adds back earnings, depreciation, amortization, deferred taxes, um, you get $28.55 in discretionary cash flow. It's 4.9 times, which is very reasonable, very cheap. The company earned over 31% return on equity last year. We have them pro forma at about 21% and return on total capital 15%. Then I do a conservative valuation of the breakup. I take the oil, natural gas, liquids, the gas, and then the other things like pipeline, which they have, add it all together and take out net debt, deferred taxes, uh, pension liabilities. I get a little over $158 a share in breakup. So the stock is selling at $0.89 cents on the knockdown value. There's no value for acreage whatsoever, even though they own a, a half a million acres in the uh, Permian Basin. Um, they, they have a huge drilling portfolio ahead of them. Um, they're going to do about 330 to 350 gross wells this year. Um, cost about seven, seven and a half million on average. And uh, the production from the drill bit will be up about two percent. They did two bolt-on acquisitions last year. One called Firebird, another one called Lorio. So it'll take the overall production up from 224,000 barrels per day of oil to about 259, about 16 percent. Um, they always live within their cash flow. Again, it generates huge free, free cash. In 2022, they generated um, $4.4 billion worth of free cash on $4.56 billion of net income. So far this year, in the first quarter, they did $768 million in free cash on net income of $746. Um, in, in terms of you know stock buybacks, they, you know, they, they, they continue to buy back shares regularly and um this year the free cash should be about th over three billion dollars for the year i just hope uh, that that 
everyone can tell how carefully Scott analyzes a company and how much detail he goes into. I've always I've always found it remarkable to listen to and very impressive. So with that, Scott, let's hear about your fourth name, Darling Ingredients, the ticker. Yes, it's owned by the family that found Swift Meat. If you remember the old Swift Butterballs, the Thanksgiving variety. Oh, yes. Um, So essentially, the company, if you say what do they do, it's a producer of sustainable natural ingredients from edible and inedible bionutrients. Their markets, they serve a farmer, food, pet food, animal food, biofuel, and fertilizer. And the products, these are, these are wonderful products, collagen, animal proteins, pet food ingredients, green energy, plasma for the pharmaceutical business. So basically, I have the revenues this year at about $7.35 billion, up 12%. They should earn about $5.45, up from 4.49. So the stock closed to 67.72 with 5.45 in earnings. It's a 12.4 multiple, which again is reasonable. The return on equity has been over 20% the last two years. It is somewhat leveraged. The net debt equity is 1.1, and they do not, they have a double B plus just below an investment grade rating. So we have this year's pro forma return on equity at about 21%, the return on total capital 10%. Again, they generate nothing but cash. In 2021, they generated $430 million in free cash. 2022, $423, and in the first quarter, another $77 million. So they're on target for at least another $300 million in free cash as well. Um, the direct business, which is selling to pharma, pet foods, um, is about 64% of the operating income. They have a joint venture with Valero in which they make biodiesel fuel with two plants, one at St. Charles Refining in Louisiana, another one in Port Arthur, Texas. That contributes about 36% of the operating income. Um, 36% of the operating income. Um, geographically, um, the bulk of the revenue is in the United States is 65%. Europe is 27%. China is small, it's only 4%. Um, they have three operating sec- sec- segments, feed ingredients, it's about 70% of the revenue, food ingredients, 22%, and fuel, which we the biodiesel is about 8%. Um, the companies had only one down quarter in the last five years, which was in the fourth quarter of 2020. It's not a household name, but at a 12-plus multiple, generating cash, I think it's a pretty good business that nobody ever heard of. That sounds good, Scott. Thank you so much for those. That's a great wrap-up. Just to reiterate the tickers of these companies, that's Iteron, I-T-R-N, Eagle Materials is E-X-P, Diamond Offshore is FANG, F-A-N-G, and the last one is D-A-R. So we had a couple of listener questions. We have a minute or two to get to them. Uh, Scott, I'm going to ask you one from Chris. He wants to know, why isn't the bond market more concerned about government deficits? What was the question, Lauren? I can't why isn't it. why isn't the bond market more concerned about government deficits? I don't know. We've been kicked. You know, we talked about this ten and fifteen years ago on the Barons Roundtable, and we used the expression "it can keep kicking the can down the road." There's no willpower on either the Democrats or the Republicans to take a long-term view of what's going on out there. But slowly, the country's going bankrupt, and at some point. You know, we're going to have to address these needs. 
because you know if you look at the built-in things like social security and medicare and then defense is very little discretionary spending left in the overall budget and you know i i don't make the tax policy i guess you have to be on the house ways and means committee to do that but it's not something people want to discuss you know but basically we've had the punch bowl on the fiscal side for years and nobody really addresses it the last time we had a balanced budget was under bill clinton in the late 90s and i'm sure you remember that i do i do so until somebody addresses it no concern there i think you're right to be concerned um, we had a question. Ben Ed wants to know: Are you concerned about consumer savings declines and the rise in credit card balance sheets and uh, or credit card balances, and what that could mean for car sales? We talked about the automakers today. Uh, no, not yet. Um, I, I think uh, largely because uh, the job market is still strong, and if people have jobs, they they keep spending. Um, it becomes a problem when they, they, they don't have those jobs and they have no money coming in. Um, I think with uh, cars, the big issue has been just that uh, people, a lot of people went out and bought them uh, during the pandemic. Um, they were coming out of the pandemic. There was that huge rush. Um, and now cars are very expensive. And uh, so they might wait a little bit longer. And so we're back in the process of normalizing. Um, but uh, at, at this point, I'm not, uh, I'm not worried yet. Okay, and last question from Ed, I'll give to you. Scott, are you concerned about the recent aggressiveness of unions, the proliferation of strikes, and the whole notion of um, declining productivity, the impact on earnings, possible inflation from wage gains and so forth? I think the question is really about the stronger labor market. Um, I'm not so concerned about unions, you know, we had strong unionization, AFL-CIO, in the post-war era, especially under the early Democrats like Truman, Kennedy, and Johnson. But it's, it's been declining with the exception of like the, the SEIU, the Service Employees Union, and maybe the Teachers Union. I don't think they're a big factor anymore, really, in the labor force the way they were like in the, the late 40s, early 50s, and 60s. Um, that's not my concern. Um, if you look at the employment cost index, it's up about four nine. So if you look at that vis-a-vis -vis inflation on the toiling 12 months, there's been a slight increase in real wages, which is good. Um, productivity, you're going to need some sort of a technology shift. The last time we had a huge increase in the productivity of the United States was when we had the proliferation of desktop computers. I'm not sure playing video games and watching sports on your handheld device do much for productivity. I told you what we really need. We need immigration. We need increases in our labor force. And that, that's going to be a determining factor on the long-term growth of the U.S. economy. Okay, we're going to leave it there today. Thanks for sharing your views, Scott. I really appreciate it. Thanks for sharing your stock picks. And thank you, Ben, for your your good insights as well. And Thanks I want to thank I want to thank our readers for tuning in today. Thanks for the questions. Tomorrow, thank you, Lauren. Oh, thank a pleasure. You. Pleasure to speak to you both. Tomorrow on Barron's Live, Greg Robb, the economics editor at Market Watch, will speak with Harvard University economist Jason Furman on the outlook for the Federal Reserve, inflation, and the U.S. economy. So should be another interesting call. Thanks again, everyone. Stay well and have a good day. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.